There was a man in, um, he, he lived in New York City, and he had, um, you know those big long fluorescent bulbs? You know what I'm talking about? Like you hang them up in, in like light fixtures. They're like six feet long, eight feet long. He had one of those bulbs, and he had to get rid of it, and he lived in New York City. So what do you do when you have to get rid of a big bulb like that in New York City? I don't know what any of you said, but they were wrong. I'm kidding. It might have been right. So what he did was he had to take it to the landfill. So what he did, he got on the subway. Anybody been in New York City, ridden the subway? I love subs. They're fantastic. I don't mean subs you eat. I love those too, but I love subway. So he gets on the subway. He's got his, his big, long, fluorescent bulb, and he just puts it next to him, and he's, he's holding on to it. And he noticed that, like, at every stop, doors would open, people would get on, people would get off. And every time people got on, he started noticing stop after stop after stop that more and more hands were appearing on that fluorescent light bulb. You know, little kids and adults. And so, you know, three, four, five stops later, he looked over and realized that, like, you know, tons of hands on that light bulb that he had to get rid of. And so he just let go of it and got off the subway. <laughs> it's kind of what I did to you last week. You didn't realize that. But um, last week we were in Luke chapter 9. And we just looked at the first six verses. We talked about how Jesus was sending the disciples out and that he told me, you know, pike light, pike light, pack light for your journey. You know, there's some things that we hold on to that turns luggage into baggage. And he said, don't take those things. He said, take nothing for your journey. And he sent them out. And we saw last week in verse 6 that they went out and they preached the gospel and they healed the sick everywhere. And that was kind of us like, I left you holding the bag kind of like, what's going to happen next? And so today we're going to talk about what happens when we preach Jesus. When we preach Jesus like they did, what happens? And there's probably a lot of things that happen, but again, I found three. Actually, I found four. And if you've got a note sheet, eventually you're going to turn that thing over and write four. And I'm going to give you a fourth bonus point that God gave me this morning. So there's four things that are going to happen whenever we preach Jesus. And we're just going to jump right in. Here's number one. Jesus raises questions. Now, verse 7 says this. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on. In other words... The disciples are out, they're preaching Jesus, they're healing the sick, and he hears about it. Now, you know this is true. If people were suddenly getting healed at Walmart, Food Lion, Harris Teeter, the public schools, the public library, if they were suddenly getting healed, do you think we'd hear about it in Stanley County? No? Oh, I think we'd hear about it. I think we'd hear all kinds of news about it. I think people wouldn't stop talking about it, and that's exactly what was going on with Herod. The disciples are out. They're doing what Jesus told them to do, and people are getting healed and saved, and he hears about it. And here's what he says. He was perplexed because some were saying that John, the Baptist, had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Backstory, real quick. If you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school, you probably didn't hear this story in Sunday school because you don't talk about beheadings a lot in Sunday school, right? But John the Baptist was in prison. Herod threw a birthday party for his wife, and his wife wanted um, the head of John the Baptist on a platter for her birthday. So little life application tip number one. If you've got friends that want somebody's head on a platter for a birthday present, get new friends, okay? These are not the kind of people you want to hang out with, right? And so she, she, um, delivers, she gets that for her birthday. So he kills John the Baptist, Herod, has him beheaded. And so when he hears about what's going on with Jesus and his disciples and people being healed and people being saved and set free, he immediately thinks, wait a second, I killed John. So listen to this question. Who then is this that I hear such things about? 
and he tried to see him. Now, this is going to mess with you a little bit because if you, again, were raised in church, you were taught that Jesus was the answer, right? You probably heard a song. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Without him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus asked a lot more questions than he ever answered. There's a man that wrote a book called Jesus is the Question, interesting title, and he did some research. I didn't do the research. I just cheated and got what he found. And here's what he said. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you count all the questions that Jesus asked, Jesus asked 307 questions. If you count all the questions that Jesus was asked by other people, it's 183. And if you count the number of, answer, the number of questions that Jesus actually answered, it's three. Jesus asked 307 questions, and he only answered three. Now, Jesus would answer, right now you're like, that's interesting, I'm going to have to check that out, because I'm not going to tell you which three he answered, you get to Google that, right? Because questions are valuable, they make us want to dig, and they make us want to research, and you can check that out, right? What I love is, Jesus had different ways of answering, so he may not, only three times he might have actually given an answer with his words, but here's how Jesus would typically answer a question. He would answer a question with a question. Don't you love people that do that? Um, counselors are the best at that, right? I mean, two-year-olds are the best at using questions, but you could say, do this, and they go, why, 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 why? But to answer a question with a question, like, you go, go for some counseling and, and just tell the counselor, I don't know, what should I do about this? And if they're a good counselor, they will say, what do you think you should do about that, <laughs> right? That'll be $150, please. I mean, and I'm not making fun of it because that's an actual strategy that they were taught to answer a question where the question, Jesus was the master at doing that. Sometimes Jesus would answer questions with parables. Somebody would ask him a question and he would go, let me tell you a story, right? And often, many times, Jesus would answer a question with the very thing that we hate the most and that is silence. He would answer a question and he would just say nothing. Have you ever... Have you ever had a conversation with a friend and they need advice and they're asking you questions and questions you don't even know what to say? I mean, you have no idea what to say. So you say nothing. And after the end of the conversation, they're like, thank you so much for talking with me. You have helped me so much. You have helped me discover the answer. And you're just sitting there going, I didn't say anything. Sometimes if you're just quiet, people start to kind of work it out a little bit. And Jesus was the master at doing that. He was the master. Parents, you already know that the best part about raising people and teaching people is not giving them the answer, but helping them learn how to find the answer. In our house, when our kids were learning how to spell, they would say, Dad, how do you spell? And they would give me a word. And I would always say, the dictionary is on the third shelf. And they'd go, that doesn't make any sense. If I don't know how to spell the word, how do I look it up? Well, you sound it out in your head and give it your best shot. At some point, if we just give answers, people never learn to grow and search and seek. I'm telling you, Jesus, when Jesus is preached, he raises questions. And sometimes maybe that's why we don't share Jesus. Maybe that's why we don't do evangelism. Maybe that's why we don't talk about our faith because we're so afraid that someone's going to ask us a question that we don't have the answer to. But I want you to know that when you preach Jesus, 
When we go out as a church and we actually do what he called us to do, we talk about Jesus, we share our faith, we pray for the sick, people will ask questions. Be prepared for that. Don't be afraid of that. It's the way that Jesus was. They asked him questions and he didn't answer them as much as we think that he would. But the beautiful fact, fact about that is, if you're taking notes, just write down Jeremiah 29, 13. That Jesus knows this. He knows if we search, then we grow in the search. And if we search, Jeremiah 29, 13 is a fantastic promise. It says this, if you seek me with all your heart, you will be found. I will be found by you. If you seek me, I will be found. The guy's like, man, ask questions. Ask questions. When I was, when I was um, new in the faith, I was reading the book of Romans. Great book. You should read it. And I was so intrigued with questions that I have a Bible at home. And I, I just started circling every question mark in the book of Romans. There are so many questions in Romans. It's almost like Paul learned from Jesus' style that questions are important. Many churches feel this need, this pressure to answer every question. You know what I feel? I feel this need to help you ask questions. To help you walk out asking questions of God. Because if you ask Him questions, Jeremiah 29, 13 says that we'll, we'll find Him. Here's the second thing that happens when we preach Jesus. It says, right after all this happens, it says, When the apostles returned, they'd been sent out. When they returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. So they come back, they're pumped, they're excited. They're telling them all the stuff that happened. And then He took them with them and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So... The disciples come back, they've been out preaching, they've been out praying for people, they're excited because people got healed, they want to get with Jesus, and they're sharing with Jesus all that happened, and Jesus said, come on, let's get away. And so they try to get away, but what happens? You've already read ahead, right? Because you're those kind of people, overachievers, you've already read ahead. They couldn't get alone because a crowd showed up, right? A huge crowd is attracted to Jesus, and the crowd shows up. Get this, the disciples want to hang out with Jesus, just me and Jesus. But the crowd would not let them do that. When Jesus is preached, Jesus creates hunger. He creates hunger. Now what we're going to see is Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is really like 10, 11, 12, maybe even 15,000. Because 5,000 were 5,000 men, and then you've got wives, and then you've got kids. So put yourself in the disciples' position. You're hanging out with Jesus. You're talking about miraculous things. It's like the best church service ever. You're like, can we just hang out and do this all day long? Can we like go on a spiritual retreat, just me and you, Jesus? And then you turn around, there's 12 of you, and there's Jesus, and behind you is a crowd of about 15,000 people. And why are they there? Because they're hungry. Not physically at the beginning, they're hungry spiritually. They're like, I've heard about Jesus. I want to know who he is. I, I, they've got questions. I want to see him do something. They're hungry spiritually for what Jesus is offering, and so that attracts a crowd. And at some point during the day, their stomachs start to growl. And I don't know what it sounds like when 15,000 people had their stomachs growling at one time. But I would imagine that in that crowd, there were people like you and me, who when we're in public and our stomach starts to growl, have you noticed we always do this? I just want you to know, we appreciate the effort, but this doesn't stop the noise, right? Like, you can still be heard. They're in public. They're hungry. I don't know. They're, they're going from hungry to 
hangry, right? They're kind of getting a little agitated. And the disciples figure this out and they say, Jesus, Jesus, whoa, whoa, stop. Stop teaching. Time out. Send them away. So they've got time to get out of here and get something to eat. Like fast food, they're they're not open 24-7. They're going to be closing. Let them get out of here now so they've got time to travel where they need to go so they can get something to eat. And Jesus not only said no, what did Jesus tell them to do? Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Now you've got to get this, okay? You've got to get this. I want you to hear my heart. There's nothing wrong with learning. I've got a master's of divinity. There's nothing wrong with learning. But there's something wrong when we want to learn and learn and learn and learn and never, ever serve. There's something wrong with us wanting to have a faith that is so comfortable we're never stretched in sticky situations. I asked you last week to pray for me when I went to Ohio because I was going to be at a special needs camp. I told you last week that my week was going to be four times, um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, for an hour and 15 minutes each day with three women that had special needs. Two of them were in wheelchairs. Um, One of them had a walker. Uh, One, cerebral palsy, it's really hard to understand her. The other one, understand her a little bit better. And then the third one was like my grandma. She was fantastic. They were all fantastic. Um, But Diane was like the one with the walker. She's super competitive. She's a Cubs fan. Like, you know, we're playing Yahtzee and pass the pigs. It It was a blast. But when it came time to teach them, like, what do you say for an hour and 15 minutes? Right? I know you're thinking, well, you're a preacher, just make it up. No, like, what do you say when somebody's that hungry for Jesus? You know what I wanted to say? I wanted to tap out. I wanted to call the camp director and say, you know what? I'm not feeling it. I'm going to go back to North Carolina because, I mean, it's just stretching me way too much. You give them something to hear. They're hungry. Feed them. But you know what Jesus was saying to me last week? Feed these people. You give them something to eat. You pour out of who you are. You're, you're never, you're never going to have enough to give to people that are hungry. And I think sometimes in church we wait until we think we're ready and we have enough and we've got enough training. And Jesus just turned to his disciples and said, look, there's a need. Meet it. And so they did. And, and what happened when Jesus creates hunger and then we allow him to use us to feed it and it's crazy how they did that do you notice what happened in the story how much did the disciples have to feed them the disciples had nothing nothing now they found a kid that had some fish and bread right and they took his stuff and gave it to Jesus and then Jesus we're going to see works this amazing miracle Um, sometimes it's funny we have nothing to give and so we take from somebody else have you ever like Given somebody else's offering. It reminds me of, of a kid I had in youth group. We were doing a Speed the Light offering. Speed the Light in the Assemblies of God is when um, youth groups can give money to missions. And so we had this goal to raise $10,000 in one year as a youth group. And so we were pushing every week, like, Speed the Light, man. Give to Speed the Light. Bring your best offering. We'll give it to the missionaries. And I had a kid, an eighth grader. He walked in one time, and he gave, he gave me $100, $100 offering to Speed the Light. So I, you know, I'm a curious youth pastor. I'm like, dude, you're an eighth grader. Where'd you get $100? He said, I sold my brother's shoes. Oh, I think you might have missed the point, but I'll take the $100, right? You know, <laughs> we'll give it to the missionaries. Sometimes that's what we do. Like, we don't have anything of our own. And so we, like, he borrowed his brother's shoes, sold them, and gave that money. But, man, Jesus is looking at the disciples saying, you feed the hungry, angry crowd. You feed them. I don't know what you would have said in that moment, but I've been like, I got nothing. 
So they found what they could. Jesus took it, multiplied it. Listen, you're going to be put in situations where you're not going to have what you need. You're not. Stop waiting for it. Allow God to use you where you are now with what you have or don't have. And he takes what we have or don't have and he makes it more than enough. What's amazing in this story is that after they took the the food and gave it to Jesus and he makes it multiply and they feed everybody, they fed everybody. It says they all ate and were satisfied. That's all 15,000 people. They all ate. Everybody say all. They all ate and were satisfied. And you know in the South what satisfied means, right? That means you're undoing the belt and you're like, dang, that was good, right? They all ate. All of them were satisfied. And then what happened? Somebody tell me that's smart. How many basketfuls of bread did they pick up? Say it louder. Twelve. One for each disciple. See that? One for each disciple. Isn't that crazy? The disciples had nothing to give. They're preaching Jesus. And because Jesus is being preached, he is creating a hunger in people. And I'm going to tell you something. I know that we talk all the time. Preachers are so bad about saying, well, the church is in decline, yada, yada, yada. The church is not in decline because of Jesus. The church may be in decline because of Christians. It's possible, right? Church people. But it's not in decline because of Jesus. Because when Jesus is preached, he creates a hunger in people. People want to know who he is. They want to do what Herod did. I want to get a little bit closer. The entire book of Luke that we're studying was written for one reason. A man had a question about who Jesus is. And Luke said, I'll investigate it and give you the answer. Man, Jesus creates a hunger. And you know people in your life right now. that They don't want to go to church. Man, if you could give them Jesus, they would take him. Jesus creates a hunger. And when we feed that hunger, we ourselves are fed. Here's the third thing. We know that um, Jesus, Jesus raises questions. Jesus causes hunger. And then when all that's happening, it says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and the disciples were with him, he asked them a question. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, um, I'm going to go Bible scholar on you for just a second. MDiv is kicking in. This didn't happen right after what we just talked about. So he feeds the 5,000 people, and then it says sometime later when Jesus is praying, okay? So there's other stuff that happened between this, the 5,000, and, and what we're going to talk about now. But Luke put this book together by the Holy Spirit, arranged. He put it together in a certain theme, certain style, certain, certain order, because he wanted to get something across, okay? You with me? All right. Bible scholar off. Here we go. When Jesus was preached and people saw who he was, and they had questions about him, when they were hungry for him, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, who do people say that I am? And they, you know, they gave the standard answers. They think you're like a really big guy and a holy guy and you're Elijah and, you know, maybe you're John the Baptist, whatever. And then Jesus with laser-like focus looks at Peter and says, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Peter gave him an answer. You're the Christ. You're the Christ. The son, you're, you're, the, you're Christ. You know what he was saying? Peter was saying this. You're the one. You're the one that we've heard about. 
The one that my parents and their parents before them and their parents before them and all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You're the one. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of Man. You're the Son of God. You're, you're it. And when Jesus heard that, when Jesus knew that Peter was convinced, Jesus threw the gauntlet down and read something that is so demanding. Listen to this. He said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I love the church. I mean, I love our church for sure. I love the church, right? I love the church. And, and I just got to ask you this question. So like, we're, we're in North America, right? I read those verses and I think about the North American church. And that sounds almost so foreign from the church that I've come to see. A, a church that says, how little can I give and still get the full benefit of God? Jesus said, no, 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 no. It doesn't work. We, don't, we don't play that way, right? Go all in. He, see, listen, when Jesus is preached, here's the third thing. Jesus demands commitment. He doesn't ask for it. He doesn't suggest it. He demands it. He says, if you will not take up your cross and follow me, if you will not deny yourself, you, you can't come. Like, that's the admission ticket, right? Like, take up your cross and follow me daily. Jesus demands all who do you say that I am? And that's what he's after ultimately. He's after people who can say that you're the Christ. You're the one. And I'll go all in on that. I'll make a couple observations and then um, we're going to flip that sheet over. I'm going to give you the fourth point. A lot of times in church people will say this. I, I just... And I don't know, man. I'm not sure who Jesus really is. I mean, I've tried Jesus. I've tried the church thing. It's not really working for me. And, and it's going to sound really strong, okay? But I'm just telling you what we just read. Do you find it amazing that Jesus sent the disciples out to preach before Peter said to Jesus that he was the Christ? Now, I've got to break this down because you're missing it. Because that was so good. And you should have been like, what? So I'm going to try again, okay? Get the fan point just right. Okay, here we go. So. In the North American church, here's what, we've, here's what we've bought, here's what we believed. If you'll just go to 30 weeks of training, if, you, if, you'll te if, I, if, I, if I'll teach you the right verses, you'll memorize them, and then at some point we'll get a committee together and we'll talk about whether or not you are personally ready to go out and minister for the Lord. Then we'll pray over you and you'll be sent. Jesus sent Peter out. He sent the disciples out. We read it in the first part of this chapter. He said, go preach the gospel and heal the sick. And then, then Herod had questions about who Jesus was. And then the disciples were a part of feeding all those people. And then Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the, you're the Messiah. You, you know what? You know how you can become convinced who Jesus is? Serve the people that he loves. Just serve. 
You don't, you don't become convinced of who Jesus is. Now, there's nothing wrong with Bible study. That's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with getting in groups and studying the Bible. But there is something wrong if that's all we ever do. And we never serve people. We never see a need and meet it. You want to grow in your faith? Do you want to become more convinced of who Jesus is? See a need, meet it. See a need, meet it. Let me repeat that again in the Greek. See a need, meet it. That's how you grow in your faith. Well, wait, shouldn't I be studying the Bible? Yes. And as you study the Bible, you will see a need and use what you study in the Bible to meet it. That's how you grow in your faith. Pick up a Ziploc bag, fill it with school supplies, see a need, meet it. That's how you grow in your faith. And, and you'll have the same thing happen in your life that happened in Peter's life. Because as you see a need and meet it, what you'll start to realize is, I'm really not bringing much to the table here. I'm giving what I have, but God is doing a miracle. And that miracle is what will convince you more and more that Jesus is who he says he is. Man, when the church in America grabs a hold of that, see a need, meet it, see a need, meet it, we'll be like Peter going, you're the Christ. We won't have to think about going all in. We'll be all in. You'll never become more convinced of who Jesus is than when you're serving those he loves. And here's number four. If you've got, your sheet, if you've got a sheet and you haven't sawn all sweaty by now, you've got it flipped over. Here's the fourth thing I want you to write down. And this is the best part, okay? So everybody look at me, take a deep breath. We're coming to a close. I'm landing this plane, and this is the best part. Everybody say best. This is the, I don't know why preachers say the best for last. I should have done this at the beginning, but it would have been all downhill. But this is it, big close, right? So number four, and this is so good because I didn't even think of it until this morning when the Holy Spirit dropped it in my heart. Jesus builds community. Jesus builds community. Now, in Luke, okay, in Luke, Peter confesses that Jesus is Christ, and in Luke, and again, Luke had a reason for this, and we're not Luke, so we don't necessarily know, but Luke just goes right on into what Jesus said, like, you know, um, hey, take up your cross, follow me. But if you go back to Matthew and Mark, and you look at that passage there, what you'll find is this, and I, I love this. So I'm coming down here, because it's so good. Okay, so um, in Matthew and Mark, what happens is Peter confesses, you're the Christ, and Jesus says, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And he says, you know what, Peter? That is such a big truth, a big truth that on this rock, okay? Now, a little, back to a little Bible scholar stuff. Peter means rock. Um, Peter means rock. And so a lot, of, a lot of churches have gotten jacked up and gone, oh, so on this rock. And so they'll say, oh, Peter. So that's the Catholic church, like on Peter. So the church is built on Peter, and so he became the first pope. That's what they believe. I don't believe that, right? Here's what I believe. I believe that the truth that Jesus is Lord is so foundational that Jesus looked at Peter and said, on that rock, Jesus is Lord. On me being the Messiah, all the way back to Genesis 3, you confessing that, on that rock, I will build my church. By the way, the gates of hell can't stop it. That's cool. That's a cool by the way. Okay, so who do you say that to? Who do you say that to? Say it. Peter, right? You're like, is that a trick question? No, Peter. He said that to Peter, okay? So now, Peter goes on to write a couple books in the Bible. One of them is 1 Peter. The other one is 2 Peter. See how that works? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to start in verse 4, okay? Again, who's writing this? Peter. Because Peter heard Jesus say, on this rock, I will build my church. Okay, here we go. First Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 4, even though I don't think it's up there. It says this, 
As you come to him, the living stone, who's the living stone? Jesus, right? Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Here we go, verse 5. This is our verse. You also, everybody say me. Like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. But you also like living stones. All right, here we go. Check this out. So I used to read that. And I was like, living stones? What in the heck's a living stone, right? They don't have hands, feet, mouths, whatever. It's like, is it just like a pile of rocks? You throw them out there? Stones. Woohoo. No. The Greek word is lithos. And here's what it means. I'm going to tell you what it means. You're going to be like, what? And then I'm going to show you a picture. So lithos means that you take the stone and you whatever. What, anybody here work masonry? You work with stones? I don't know. But, um, I don't. So I'm going to say stuff like you shave it or you sand it. I don't know what you do. Chip it. I don't know. But you take a stone like, you know, stone. And then you shape it. Shave it. What do you do? Shape it. Okay. That's good. Thank you so much. Shape it. Shape it. Um, wisdom cred to Kyle. Shape it. Right. You shape it. So that it, because I know it's not a pile of rocks. Listen, listen, listen. So that it, you can do this stuff with it. Look at this. Check this out. Okay, now, I know that it is hot as blazes in this room. And the last thing I want to talk about is the fireplace. But yay, says the Lord, in about a month and a half, oh, sweet Moses, you're going to be in your house, and you're going to have a fire in that fireplace. Now, if you're highly favored of the Lord, you're going to have a fireplace like that outside. Oh, come on. Somebody say Amen. This is so good. You're not rude with me. Somebody say amen. amen. High five my wife. Good job. You're going to have a fireplace that looks like this, and, and it's going to be outside, and you're going to have, like, the kids over, and they're going to they're make s'mores, right? And they're going to, like, get that sticky marshmallow stuff all over their hands, and they're going to eat it, and then they're going to hug you. They're going to wipe, wipe, wipe the sticky stuff in your It's going to be awesome, right? About a month and a half from now, not now, it's like 128 degrees still. I've noticed that when I say a temperature is always 128 degrees. Have you noticed that? Okay, all right, let's just continue. We're coming to a close. Okay, hang in there with me. This is the best part. This is the best part. So, okay, so when it says, um, you also like living stones, these are the stones that the Greek is talking about, lithos. Stones that have been shaped so that they fit in their specific place. Here's why that's important. That's a big one right there. Can you see that? I mean, not now because my finger's in the way. But if you took that piece out, see how it's, it's shaped perfectly to be there? If you took that out, probably the whole thing's not falling apart. It's just like Jenga. Some of them you can pull out, right? But it got weaker there because that stone has been shaped specifically to fit in that spot. And Peter, who heard Jesus say, on this rock... I will build my church, goes on to say, it suddenly dawned on me, guys, the way that God builds his church is we're living stones. And he shapes us. How many of you have had a week this past week when circumstances have been shaping you? Shaping rhymes with chafe, or at least it sounds like it. it's not fun to be shaped, right? But he's shaping you like a living stone so that you can fit exactly where you're supposed to go. And not one of those stones is the same. Because when we preach Jesus, Jesus builds community. And we are committed to this one thing. Listen, if I could start a campaign, I don't want a church of white people 
God doesn't want a church of white people. God doesn't want a church of all middle class. God doesn't even want a church of lower class and no middle class. God doesn't want black and no white. God doesn't want adults and no kids. God doesn't want normal people like me and abnormal people like the ladies I met this past week in Ohio. If we could start a hashtag campaign, can we just start hashtag all stones matter, right? Because every one of those matter, and without any one of those, that's not staying together. And so Jesus builds community, and he builds a community that does not look like you or me. He doesn't save us. He doesn't save one of us so that we can be alone as one of us. He saves all of us so that we can be all together. This past week, I realized that. Now, you don't have to have a heart for special needs people. I do, because my brother was special needs. We're blessed in our church with children of special needs. I want to be blessed more. I want to have a church where we have community, where in living rooms around the county, it's not just white 25-year-olds talking to white 25-year-olds, but it's teenagers talking with adults. It's children piping up and bringing some wisdom from the Scripture that an adult goes, that's good. I want that. We believe that. We talk about community groups a lot here because it's all about community. But I knew you wouldn't want to hear me, and it's hot, and I'm going to get back in front of the fan. So while I go back in front of the fan, I got a video. Check it out. Here's the last observation, and then we're going to close. We believe, just based on what we read, that questions get answered Hunger gets fed, and commitment gets solidified in community. That when we ask questions together, we grow together. When we hunger together, we are satisfied together. When we go all in together, we stay committed together. I I tried to sum it up in a big idea, so um, let me see if this makes sense for you. A big idea is on your sheet, you can fill it in. Christianity is best lived in community. Now, I am, um, I know i got to wrap this up. Y'all have been so patient. I'm giving you an out. I, that's, the, that's the preacher in me because I love you. And so I feel like I need to give you loopholes. But then at the same time, you know, I didn't want to say that Christianity is best lived in community. What I wanted to tell you was Christianity is only lived in community. It's only lived in community. There are no lone rangers in the Bible. There is never a time in the Bible that we're able to say to God, well, I'm going to take my fish and loaves and go home. It's all about community. All of it. So, you know, community groups at the gathering are not a program. They're something that we are all in on because we believe that life literally is better lived out in circles than in rows. That you can come here, it's good that you're here, but the true growth even from this message would happen in a circle. Some were talking about it. We believe that passionately. I was, I, was, I was with a pastor this past week, and he said, Fly out. Like, I just don't think I'll ever do small groups. I've been burned by small groups. My response, I have to, and I'll never stop. I'll be burned again by community groups. It'll happen. But it's the gospel. Community is the gospel. It's how Jesus grows us. And so this morning, the, the, the way to apply this message is very simple. If you're not serving, serve. Right? If you're not serving, we'd love for you to serve in the church, but you can serve where you work. You can serve at school. You can serve your teachers if you're a student, and teacher, you can serve your students if you're not, if you're a teacher. There's all kinds of ways to serve. 
And then the other application is real simple. We're going to have our community group leaders and hosts come to the front in just a minute. And we're going to pray over them. We're starting a brand, new, a brand new quarter of community groups in about two and a half weeks. And we're going to give you, when you leave today, you're going to get a booklet. It looks just like this, I think, or it might be down. Nope, it looks just like this. On the front, it says, appropriately enough, community groups. <laughs> and it's just a brochure. It talks about you know, like the, the information that you need to know where groups meet, when they meet. But what's most important is this. Why do we do community groups? Because rows have to point to circles. And the testimonies in here, I want you to take it with you and read it. The testimonies from people in our church, in our groups, about what God has done through community. I know, I know seasons of life. I know how it works. I know sometimes we want to do things and we can't. I'm just telling you, community is the gospel. Community is the gospel. Don't try to fit it into a seat. Just do it. There are people in our church who waited and waited and waited to go into, into community groups because they didn't think they could fit it in their schedule. And if you ask them today, here's what they'll tell you. I'll never not do it. Because it's where we grow. Because every stone matters, right? And because we want stones to be around other stones that aren't like them. My life is different today because I was around three amazing women this past week. My life is different because I had a brother who challenged me and stretched me. My life is different because I got to hang out with teenagers most of my ministry. Our community group, our community group is different because teenagers and children are there and they have amazing things to say about Jesus. And when you get around people that are different than you, it's amazing how God will grow you.